chapter 11. So we're going through a series now on the church and some different characteristics of the church. And um, last week we talked about church discipline, discipline a little bit. And um, nobody is in trouble, just so that everybody knows. The, uh, I know that, that when you talk about topics like that, it can stir that up. But um, church discipline is just a healthy part of the church. It's a, it's a part of the um, process that uh, the church deals with. And uh, it's, it's meant to help the church remain healthy. And it's meant to uh, uh, chasten, disciple, if you will, um, believers who, who do go astray. And, and then it's also meant to uh, remove people who are not believers and to um, let the Lord deal with them in a, in, a, in, a, in a judgment type of a way so that ultimately, as we mentioned last week, 1 Corinthians 5, they will come to know the Lord as their Savior, which is the most important thing. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about church. We're going to begin uh, a two-part series on church ordinances, and uh, we'll look at um, the Lord's Supper this morning, and then in two weeks, we'll do a baptism, and we'll look at baptism uh, in two weeks. And, and so we're just going to uh, unpack, um, biblically, what is a church ordinance. And uh, again, there are two church ordinances mentioned to us in Scripture, um, the Lord's Supper and, and baptism which the New Testament church practices. There are a lot of different uh, religions out there that teach other sacraments that they um, practice and they believe that those things bring about righteousness, um, bring a person closer to the Lord if they practice such things. Uh, we teach and we believe the New Testament teaches that the two ordinances that are given to us are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they're, they're given to us not to add righteousness to us, not to make us better people, um, not to bring us closer to the Lord. They're really not meant to add anything to our righteousness. And they're meant to remind us. Uh, they're, they're a tradition that has been passed down and they're there to remind us of what Jesus Christ has done for us. They're to remind us of what we stand for and what we base our faith on and, and what we live for every day of our lives. And, uh, and why we build on those things. I think of 1 Corinthians 15 where it talks about the resurrection from the dead and the scripture talks about how if Jesus Christ, he says if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not resurrected from the dead and our faith is in vain. Our, our, our faith, our system of belief is empty and it's worthless. But we know that our belief system is not empty and worthless. It, it is very powerful and the reason it is powerful is because Jesus Christ is not in the grave any longer. He did rise from the dead and he was victorious and, and is, continues to be victorious um, over all of the, the works of evil, the works of darkness. And he's not just victorious over those things without us being a part of that. He's victorious over, the, over those things for us and he's victor victorious over those things in us. And so an ordinance is, um, is, a, is a term that's used that, to describe something that is passed down. Um, here in 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm just gonna read verses two, and we're gonna look at the whole package here for a little bit. He says, I, commend, I command you or I commend you because you 
remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. And traditions is another word for ordinance. Um, uh, Some versions translate this word in this text as ordinances, and most of your more modern versions translate it as traditions, and the Greek word um, pretty much consistently throughout the New Testament is translated traditions. And a, a tradition is just something that has been established and is passed down from generation to generation to, in many ways, to link generations together. It's so important that generations remain linked together because we have to learn from the last generation and they have to learn from the generation behind them and so forth and so on. And if you ever disconnect generations, you lose something. Um, you lose wisdom. And then one of the, I believe one of the bigger, bigger struggles in our culture today is the disconnection of generations. And there's a generation that has totally separated himself from the last generation and, and therefore uh, is not benefiting from the wisdom that was there. And so God gave us these traditions to help us connect from generation to generation to generation so that things can be carried down um, and be remembered. And that's the purpose of a tradition. What we want to be mindful of is on, while, while we would refer to these as ordinances, some religions would refer, refer to them as sacraments. The reason we don't refer to them as sacraments is because a sacrament, by definition, uh, implies an, an adding of righteousness, okay? It, it implies that when you do this sacrament, you are becoming more righteous. You are accessing, if you will, by that work, you are accessing God's grace. What we believe as a church is that our righteousness is based 100% on what Jesus Christ did in the cross and in the resurrection, that our righteousness has nothing to do with us being righteous, but has everything to do with what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. We're not depending on ourselves to be righteous, but we're depending on what is also known as alien righteousness. It's, it's a righteousness that has been gifted to us. It's a righteousness that has been imputed in us and, and, and for us, but it is not our righteousness. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 The very last verse of that passage says, he has become for us. And then it lists a few things, wisdom and righteousness. He has become these things for us. So we don't want to ever mistake um, uh, an ordinance or a tradition that we do, and we we, we count them as important, but we don't ever want to mistake these as being something that makes us more righteous or makes us better. Because we are, we are, our righteousness is in Christ and his righteousness is in us. He is the fulfillment of the law. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law. I did not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. Come, I've come to complete the law. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Everything that God requires of us, Jesus Christ accomplished, and then he gifted that to us. And now we are, because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we have been, um, we have become, in, we have been imputed his good works, his righteousness. Everything that Christ did has been gifted to us uh, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
We've been given his righteousness and we're righteous because of what he did, not because of what we have done. Philippians 3, 8, and 9, um, the apostle Paul says it this way. And the apostle Paul, above all men, Paul says in this same context, he says, if anybody has the right to glory in their own fleshly ability, I do. But then Paul says this, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness that comes by the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that is dependent on faith. So again, we're not depending on things that we do to make us righteous. These traditions that are passed down, we don't want to minimize them, but we also don't want to idolize them. Isaiah 61 in verse 10, the Bible says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We have been, we have been clothed, we have been adorned with the righteousness, with the robe of righteousness that is Jesus Christ's robe of righteousness. I always like to describe it or picture it this way, that when Jesus Christ came into the world, that we were all robed in darkness. We were all sinful, and therefore our lives were, were, were consumed with darkness. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he took on himself our robe of darkness, of sin, and he paid the full penalty for our sins. And he took off of himself his perfect robe of righteousness and he granted that to us as a gift and we are rewarded for all of his righteousnesses. So in, in the same way that this, this transition that takes place in God's economy, that there was a literal transition of our sinfulness onto Jesus and there was a literal punishment for those sins... In the same way, there is a literal transition of Christ's righteousness onto us, and we are rewarded for his righteousness in the same way that he was punished for our sins. And none of us here today would question that Jesus Christ was fully punished for our sins. The challenge is, is can we acknowledge and accept that we are rewarded for his righteousness in the same way? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. And there's two words at the end of that verse that are so significant that we might become the righteousness of God in him or in Christ. By being in Christ, we are we are bearing the righteousness of, of God, the righteousness of Christ, and we are then rewarded for that. I say all of that because it's important as we go through on this little journey these few weeks to talk about these 
um, ordinances, that we don't look at them as ways to become better Christians. We don't look at them as ways to become more righteous or more saved. There are people who believe that through these ordinances that they are actually being saved. We really want to destroy that thinking because that thinking undermines the very essence of Scripture. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It doesn't say in Titus 3 and verse 5 that we are saved because of our works of righteousness. It says in Titus 3 and verse 5, not by works of righteousness have we been saved, but by his mercy he has saved us, by the washing and regenerating of the Holy Spirit. It is not the things that we have done that bring us salvation. It is the things that Jesus has done that brings us salvation. Even Jesus in Matthew 3, when he goes to be baptized, they, uh, John the Baptist refuses to baptize him initially. And Jesus says to him, baptize me so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment, the satisfaction of everything that God requires of us. And if we have Jesus, we have all of his righteousnesses. So you say, well then, Pastor John, why do we take the Lord's Supper and why do we get baptized? Because it's an ordinance. It's something that the Lord set forth for the church to do to, to represent or to reflect on what he has done for us. That, that's the whole meaning of it. It doesn't make us any better. It's a reflection on what he has already done for us. It's a wonderful and beautiful reflection of what Christ has done for us. So an ordinance is something that God, a, a tradition, an ordinance is something that God sets forth for us to remember what he's done. And it, it carries down through um, many generations. And again, it's, there's a distinction from something that adds righteousness and something simply that manifests what Christ has already done for us. So I want to give you five or six things, if, you, if you're taking notes this morning, to just consider from our text and also from other texts in God's Word to consider when you're dealing with these, these ordinances in the Scriptures and how that we're to, how that we're to deal with them. Um, it's important. We take this seriously. Paul says in verse number 2, verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I commend you because you remember me in everything to maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul says, I don't want you to take these traditions lightly. I want you to, to, to perform them exactly like I delivered them to you. This is not a tradition that's supposed to evolve from generation to generation. Paul wants these traditions to stay as much the same as when he was administering them to the church in the first century, that we be doing the same thing today as much as we possibly can. That we minister these ordinances in such a way that they are a reflection of how they were ministered in the time of the scriptures. This is why we take 1 Corinthians 11 every week that we take the Lord's Supper once a month. We take 1 Corinthians 11 and we look at it because we want to minister it exactly like they did in the word of God. We want, we want to reflect on that. So let me give you some things this morning that are important to consider as we think about these, what we will, will call ordinances, or you can call them, as this text calls them, traditions. Okay? 
there are a few things that we want to be reminded of. Number one is the caution about these, about these traditions. And specifically this morning, we're going to talk about communion. So the first one is the caution about communion. Okay? The Lord gives us several cautions in the Gospels about some of these traditions taking a too significant of a place. In other words, will they become an idol? Some people would say, if you ask them about their righteousness or you ask them about their walk with the Lord or you ask them about something to do with their salvation, they point you to one of these traditions. In other words, they make these traditions bigger than they really are. And these traditions, just because somebody has been baptized and just because somebody has taken the Lord's Supper doesn't in any way imply that that person is a follower of Jesus Christ. And sure, it is a reflection. And for those who are truly followers of Jesus Christ who are doing these things, it is very important, very significant. But it doesn't mean that people can't take the Lord's Supper and be baptized and still be lost. And if our salvation if our walk with the Lord, if our righteousness is based upon some tradition that we have done, our righteousness is very empty and it's very futile. It must be based upon what Jesus Christ has done. So first of all, here's a caution for you. Be careful when traditions become a substitute for obedience. When traditions become a substitute for obedience... Matthew deals with this in Matthew 15 when he says in verse 1, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And this was a tradition. This was a, a real tradition. Wash your hands before you eat. And, and might I say a good tradition, amen? It's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat. It's not a good idea to make washing your hands before you eat foundational to your salvation or your walk with God. That's what he's saying here. When these traditions become a substitute for obedience, he goes on, and I'm not going to read it all because of time, but he goes on to describe the fact that these, these guys were saying, they were taking their traditions and they were saying, we hold to these traditions, but they were neglecting honoring their own parents. And he says, don't let your traditions become an excuse for doing what God's word has called you to do. Don't let your traditions excuse you from being obedient to God's word. Don't let your traditions excuse you from loving your wives. Don't let your traditions excuse you from submitting to your husbands. Don't let your traditions excuse you from loving and honoring and obeying your parents. You see, there are real commands in God's word. And what people do is they take, well, I go to church on Sunday and I put money in the offering plate, so I'm excused from having to actually literally obey the Lord. That, that's not true. That's, that's a heresy. That's an excuse. That's a, an escape route from doing what we're actually called to do. Taking the Lord's Supper and, and being baptized are good things, but they're not excuses from doing what God has called us to do. an excuse to not evangelize, an excuse to not tell somebody. These are not supposed to be excuses. That's what he warns us about. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, talking about sacrifices and offerings, the Lord says, Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, to listen to the Lord and to obey the Lord is more important than the sacrifices that we make. We can make all the sacrifices in the world. We can kill all the animals that we want. But if there's no obedience and listening to God's word, those things mean nothing. It even says in his word that he hates those sacrifices and offerings. It's amazing. He's the one who ordered them to make these sacrifices and offerings, right? And then he says, I hate these sacrifices and offerings. Why? Because they became a substitute for actually following Jesus. We want to be cautious about the fact that these traditions can become a substitute for obedience to the Lord. Some people make it a point to come to church on days that we do the Lord's Supper and they don't come any other time of the month. It becomes a substitute. It can become a substitute for worshiping God. So so remember that, caution number one. Caution number two It's found in Mark 7 and verse 13. It's when traditions invalidate the word of God. It's when traditions, and and let me say it this way, when traditions become equal to or, or the word of God becomes subservient to those traditions. We need to be cautioned about that. We need to be cautious that we don't ever let traditions supersede what the word of God says. And I understand that there are traditions in the word of God, okay? Don't think that when Mark 7, 13 was written, he wasn't talking about traditions that were given to them. The washing of hands was tradition that was given to them for the elders to do. It was a, a good thing, not a bad thing. But when these traditions become elevated, they become a bad thing. When they become idols to us, and not a means by which we worship the Lord. When traditions invalidate the word of God. Number three, when traditions consume our zeal. Paul describes it this way in Galatians 1 and verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism above, above, beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. Paul often talked about his, before he was saved, he often talked about the zeal that he had for those traditions. Listen, folks, the, the zeal that we have is not for the traditions. It's not, we're not to be zealous for the Lord's Supper or zealous for baptism. We're to be zealous for the Lord of the Lord's Supper and zealous for the Lord of baptism. And these are ways that we express our zeal for the Lord, not our zeal for traditions. It's very dangerous when we, again, elevate those things to, to in, in some way, take the place of the Lord. There are good zeals in the Bible. I'm just gonna give you four. There is a zeal for God in 2 Kings 10, 16 that's called good. In 2 Corinthians 7, 7, there is a zeal for believers that's called good. In John 2, 17, there's a zeal for the church that's called good. And in Psalm 119, the zeal for the word of God is called good. But in all of these cases, it's a zeal for God. We need need a zeal for God. We need an excitement for God again. We need to be reinvigorated with the things of God and the person of God. But we need to be careful that the things of God don't become a replacement for the person of God. 
We must be careful that we don't think by coming to church on Sunday that sometimes we have a license Monday through Saturday to do whatever we want to do, right? That is not a zeal for God. For God. Number four, when traditions lead us astray from the truth. Colossians 2 and verse 8 says, See to it that no one makes you captive by philosophies and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. Be careful when we have traditions that can lead us away from the truth. You say, Pastor John, how can the Lord's Supper lead us away from the truth? I will, I will submit to you that there are people who believe that this saves people. Is that the truth? We must be cautious with all traditions. We must make sure that they point us to one person, and that is to Christ. And even within the traditions, we don't ever want to allow them to become elevated or to become an object of our worship and our praise or even a means by which we enter into the presence of God. We know that John 14 and verse six says, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father lest they come through me. Jesus makes a very strong statement there that the only way that we enter into God's presence is through his word, through him, through Jesus. So, so some cautions that we have in regards to traditions. The second thing that we, I wanna look at this morning is the cycle of communion, the cycle of communion. Communion began, the, the idea of communion starts back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter number 12 with the Passover meal. And if you look back in Exodus 12, you will find that there is a, there is a lot of similarities to what we celebrate today as the Lord's Supper. Okay, there's the, the um, in those times there was a sacrifice of the animal because Jesus Christ had not been sacrificed yet. So therefore it was a picture of a future event that was going to take place. There was the eating of the um, meat that was from that sacrifice. There was the eating of unleavened bread. There was also the eating of bitter herbs to remind them of what had taken place in, in, the, in Egypt. They were to be constantly reminded of the suffering that they went through in Egypt so that they wouldn't want to go back to that. So we can trace the, the line of this tradition all the way back to the Old Testament Passover meal. In the New Testament, we have, in the, each one of the Gospels, we have what's called the Last Supper. And this is where that transition carries, that tradition carries into the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is an example of what, it's, it's a picture, again, of what's about to happen and uh, an example of that. And they're, they're, they're taking the Lord's Supper prior to Jesus Christ dying and rising again. One of the distinctions of this is that the Lord washed the disciples' feet. He gave them an example of what they were getting ready to begin to do, to, to serve. That was kind of the commission that they were going to have. And then now we have the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Supper, also known as, as communion, is a reminder. You can see that word here used several times. This do in remembrance of me. It's a reminder. And it's a proclamation. As long as you take this, you are proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. So in the Old Testament, you have a foreshadowing 
of what's going to take place. In the Gospels, you have an example to the disciples of what they're going to do in the future. And in the Lord's Supper, which is what we celebrate, you have a reminder and a proclamation of what Jesus Christ has done. And that's the cycle, that, that's the cycle of this tradition being passed down. The components of communion are twofold, okay? Also known as elements. Um, there is the bread and the wine or the juice, which, whichever you prefer in, in, in translating that term. The idea of it is, if you go back to the Gospels, it was the fruit of the vine. It was a drink that came from fruit. Okay, that is what we know from the time of Jesus Christ and when he had this meal with his disciples. Okay, and there are three reflections to be had in these three elements, or these two elements. Number one is it was unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was simply a picture of purity. Leaven, if you study the New Testament, you will find that leaven is a reflection of sin. We talked about last week, 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven that's left in the church will leaven the whole lump, right? In uh, uh, Matthew 16, it talks about the leaven of doctrinal error in the Sadducees. It talks about the leaven of hypocrisy with the Pharisees. In Mark 8, it talks about the leaven of putting man's law above God's law with Herod. We have this, this constantly taking place. So we have unleavened bread that's been commanded of us all the way again, all the way back in, the, in Exodus 12, they were to take and eat unleavened bread. It's a sign of purity. Jesus Christ was the perfect lamb of God. So when we take of that bread, we're picturing the body of Jesus Christ that was perfect. The lamb of God that was without spot and without blemish that was sacrificed for us before the foundation of the world. That's what we celebrate and that's what we worship. So when you take the bread, we're gonna take the bread this morning. When you take it, you are taking a reflection of the purity of Christ. Okay, the Bible says that he was without sin. He was perfect and without sin. The only way that he could be sufficient to pay for our sins if he himself had no sins of his own. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's what the unleavened bread represents. That's why we use unleavened bread when we are taking the Lord's Supper. The second representation in the element is the broken bread. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is why the bread is broken. It, it, in those days, it was actually torn apart and, and given to each one of the disciples when the Lord was distributing it. Nowadays, we have little wafers that, um, I think we do use crackers actually that are broken. And to give that picture of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and to understand that when we take that wafer and we look at that broken wafer, we realize that we are remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. This is a picture, a reminder of that fact that Jesus Christ's body was literally torn apart. You can take a piece of bread like you can picture Jesus doing and you can rip it apart and you can begin to fathom what Jesus Christ went through for your salvation. It's, it's, it's really, I mean, if you don't, you don't want to be gruesome, but it's a gruesome picture. And it's a gruesome picture for a reason. Jesus Christ paid the, 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 Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price to satisfy God's wrath towards the sins of, of his people. He paid the ultimate price. 
So when we look at that broken piece of cracker that we're about to eat, we, we want to remember that this is the reflection of, of, the, of the time when Jesus Christ had, had a whip strapped across his back with nine different sharp edges on each one of them that would literally tear his skin off of his body. When we take that little wafer, we're reminded of the crown of thorns that was placed upon his head and then beat into his brow. We're reminded of the spitting and the mocking and the punching that, that he endured. We're, we're reminded of those things. The, the, the nails that were placed into his hands and to his feet, those were all meant for us. Those were all meant for us. When we take this little broken cracker, we're, we're reminded of all of the suffering that Jesus Christ went through so that we could be saved. Isaiah 53 is a wonderful passage of scripture that deals with this. We, we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of this for a number of reasons. We need to know the nature and the extent of our sinfulness. Jesus Christ did not get a slap on the hand. And the reason why Jesus Christ did not get a slap on his hand is because we did not commit crimes that were worthy of a slap on the hand. We committed crimes that were worthy of utter destruction. Right? That's why we get to we get to take of this broken and remember that that reflects the price of our sins. And then we drink the, the cup of juice, which the scriptures tell us is a picture of the new covenant, the seal. Hebrews 9, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in order for the new covenant to be in place, in order for the new covenant to actually forgive sins, it has to be sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And when, we take this, when we take this little cup of drink and it's just small and insignificant, it is a reminder of the fact that Jesus Christ's blood sealed forever those who trust in him. Sealed forever. One sacrifice. The Bible says that Jesus Christ entered into the Holy of Holies one time to pay for all of our sins. It's a wonderful gift, isn't it? And it has been sealed. The Bible says in Hebrews uh, 8, 9, and 10, it was not sealed with the blood of goats and the blood of animals. It was sealed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. When we take this cup, we are being reminded of that blood and how it sealed us forever. Number four, the call of communion. Let me give you a few thoughts here. Number one, it's a call to obedience. Paul says very clearly at the beginning of this, I want you to do this just like I did it. He, he, he commands them. I want you to do it in the same way that I did it. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to manipulate or to evolve the Lord's Supper. He wants us to do it just like he did it. And you know something, one of the key elements to being a Christian is that we've submitted our wills to Christ's will, right? So when Christ commands something of us, we don't argue with him, we don't be debate with him. We simply obey. When he's given us this in his word, this is, a, this is an opportunity to, for us to reveal our submitted will by doing it exactly like he said to do it. Some people just walk through this passage and they just think, well, we can, we can do whatever we want. No, he says specifically, do it exactly like I did it. And he doesn't expect there to be an argument or a debate because these people are professing believers. It's a call to obedience. 
or an opportunity, let me say this, or it's an opportunity to express the obedience that God has put in us by his spirit. It's a call to order. It's a reflection. The Lord's Supper, you look at uh, the next verses in in, uh, the beginning of that chapter, it's a call to order. The order that God has structured from the beginning of time Creation. God created things with an order, right? If we are going to reflect them, reflect him, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 that everything in the church should be done what? Decently and in order. You say, why does everything in the church need to be done decently and in order? Because it's a reflection of God in creation. He didn't make things without purpose. He didn't make things without order. Why do our homes need to be places of decency and in order? And structure, because that's how God ordained it in the beginning. It's a call to order so that we can reflect on the Lord. It's a call to unity so that we all do it together. It's something that we all do together, unites us. It's a call to introspection. He says in this text to examine yourself, evaluate yourself, make sure that you don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Here's what he says. You go back here in verse number six, uh, 18, okay? He says, um, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you can be recognized. Here's what's happening. There's a group of people in this story here, in this writing that were taking the Lord's Supper and looking at it as something that was very selfish, And then there was another group of people that were taking the Lord's Supper very seriously, right? The Lord says, this distinguishes those who are true believers. If somebody takes the Lord's Supper in an irreverent way, it doesn't mean that we should help them take it reverently. It means that we should consider that possibly they aren't reverent towards what Jesus Christ has done. And that's what he means when he goes into the next chapter and says, don't take the Lord's Supper unworthily. He means don't take the Lord's Supper lost. Don't reflect on the outside what's not true about you on the inside. It's a, examine yourself to see if you really reverence Jesus. Because you're about to take that which reflects or represents Jesus. It's a call for us to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see that you are in the... Examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Prove yourselves. This is important. Because the alternative at the end of this chapter, it's very clear that if you take the Lord's Supper unworthily, that you will be judged for the body and the blood of the Lord. It's a time of evaluation, to evaluate our hearts, to see, am I one who reverences Christ? It's a call to remember. Again, you see this throughout the text, this do in remembrance of me. It's a call of remembrance. We to remember what Christ did. It's a call to repent. When we come in to this scenario, when we come in to, to practice this ceremony, we are called to evaluate ourselves, but then if we evaluate ourselves and notice that we're not right with God, it's a call to repent 
It's a call to change. He even lists out in the very last few verses of this the very thing that he reprimands them for, which is taking the Lord's Supper in an unserious way. He now says to them, okay, now wait for another person. If you're hungry, go home and eat. Don't be judging. He, he goes and he says, now do the opposite. He challenges them to go from this realm of rebellion and 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 counting the Lord's Supper as insignificant to this realm of, of selflessness when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we can't really fathom how, how could somebody come to the Lord's Supper selfishly? It is the very essence of selflessness, isn't it? But that's exactly what was taking place. And what the Apostle Paul was saying is, is you don't understand what this represents. And it's not an issue of the flesh it's an issue of the heart. I would say to people, if you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and are never given the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper or be baptized, I praise the Lord that you came to know Jesus. And I'm scared for people who take the Lord's Supper and are baptized but don't know Jesus. They're the ones that we should be afraid for this is a remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for us and it calls us to repentance and it calls us to change. He tells us in Luke 13, 3, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The last thing it's a call to is it's a call to action. You go back to Exodus 12 when they took the, Lord, they took the Passover meal, the Lord said to them, strap on your sandals and be ready to move. Have your bags packed because tomorrow, after we're done doing this, tomorrow you're going to be out of here. With his disciples, if you come to the Last Supper, he's preparing them to, to face his death. But more than that, he is equipping them for discipleship. They're now going to be commissioned out into the world to take on the things that Jesus Christ started. What a huge commission, right? They're about to take on the Great Commission. And then when we take the Lord's Supper, we take it with the mindset, not of, okay, let's get comfortable. But here's what Jesus did for us, so what can we do for others? What is our commissioning? What are we taking this for? Is it so that we can, is it so that we can sit and be comfortable and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me? Or is it so that we can sit and enjoy and thank Jesus for what he's done for us and then go into all the world and do something about it for others? It's a commissioning to action. Every time we remember what Jesus Christ did for us, it should motivate us with a desire to do things for others with grace, with mercy, with forgiveness, with kindness. When you walk out of here after taking this, you should go home and think of people that you can forgive. And think about people that you can show grace to and mercy to. It's a call to action. In Revelation 2 and verse 5, the Lord is talking to the church at Ephesus. And he says, remember he tells them that they've lost their first love, right? Here's what he says to them. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at the first. Remember, repent, and return to doing what is right. 
This is an opportunity for us this morning to remember, to repent, and to return to doing what is right. And we have this reminder for us every month, and maybe we need it. Maybe I need it more often even than that. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. I want to encourage you. This is a significant event. It's never meant to be idolized. It's never to be put on a pedestal above Christ or even equal with Christ. It's a way to remember Christ. So I don't want anybody in here to idolize it or to walk out saying, well, I took the Lord's Supper today, so I must, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But I, I don't want us to minimize it and not to reflect on the fact that that little wafer that's gonna be in our hands that's a broken piece of cracker represents the broken body of our Lord. And that that little cup that we're about to drink of juice represents the sealing of God's promises to his people that he will change them and he will forgive them. May we treasure this moment and then may we be moved by it. May we let it impact our lives. Folks, listen. That's what the Lord is about. The Lord is about inspiring people to change and expire them into action. And that's what we want to do. I'm going to invite the, the men who are going to distribute this to come at this time and to prepare to administer the Lord's Supper. They're going to, they're going to administer, they're going to pass out the elements. Guys, go ahead and get started, if you would, please. What I want to do is while they're passing it out to have a, a silent moment of prayer to, again, to examine ourselves as, as the scripture says, to evaluate where we're at spiritually. If it's ne needed to have repentance in that moment and then to partake of the Lord's Supper. So if you've already received your elements, just bow, if you would, and pray. And if you haven't yet, um, pray with your eyes a little bit open and um, you'll receive your elements and then just continue to pray and examine your heart and then we'll come back together with a corporate prayer. Father, you alone know our hearts and you know each individual that's here today and we pray that even now you would be doing a work that only you can do to awaken us to our spiritual condition, to awaken someone, Lord, to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the extraordinary nature of his salvation and the way that they can be restored to peace and fellowship with you through and in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do that work. I thank you for this ceremony that we have to remind us of what you have done for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless it. I pray that you would bless these, uh, this bread that is broken, that is a re reminder of your body that was um, torn apart because of our sin and that you bore the complete wrath of the Father on our behalf. And let us remember that, Lord, in a, in a real way. Thank you for the cup that seals us um, in, Lord, that is a representation of the sealing of the blood of Christ, that we have hope in him. 
Thank you for the opportunity to, to partake of this together as a church family. Lord, um, may you unite us through it and commission us as well. In Christ's name, amen. The scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.